This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. Welcome to the podcast formerly known as Romaniacs. After over 200 episodes, several live shows and some unfortunate developments on the Brexit front, it's, <laughs> it's time for us to change. We're not renaming ourselves Rejoiniacs because that's not a word. But after lots of head scratching and whiteboard scrawling, we've hit upon a new name which we think captures the spirit of the podcast and the spirit of the times. Who among us hasn't, on seeing the news, muttered, oh God, what now? It's the all-purpose response to the slings and arrows of outrageous politics. So we've got a new name, a new look, a spruced-up theme tune, courtesy of our old friend's corner shop, where the style and the values of the podcast will stay the same. We'll still be looking hard at politics, society, government, and our old friend Brexit, and try to help everyone through these trying times. We especially want to thank our Patreon backers for getting us this far. We'll be keeping all of our Legacy Romaniacs merch available to you in perpetuity to keep prices down on the black market <laughs> but there'll be exciting new stuff available soon so as the christopher eccleston of romaniacs is enveloped in golden light and transforms into the david tennant of oh god what now which that dates us uh let's greet the panel in alphabetical order uh it's golden voice commentator alex andreu hello hello book writing editor of politics.co.uk ian dunt hello 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 Chief Executive of Best of Britain, Naomi Smith. Hello. Bonjour et pour info, je suis aussi une rejoining. <laughs> it's not a word. Ne pas un word. <laughs> and editor of the LSE COVID blog, Ros Taylor. Hello. Guten Abend. <laughs> God, it's all happening. Uh, Ros, it's a good week to change the name because a, a new NewGov poll confirms that 50% of the population think Brexit was a mistake and only 38% are still behind it. That's 4% up from last time. So we've won the argument and we can move on, yes? <laughs> uh, the first rule of winning the argument is not to claim you've won the argument. What we have to do now is to double down on the positives of Brexit. Because that will really drive them mad. You know, like, like the UK-Japan FTA, that means we don't have to pay more for our soy sauce, unless it's imported from the level, 90% of it is. You know, and all the new customs jobs we're going to be getting at a time of high unemployment. You know, we just have to keep up the boostership until they beg us to stop, and then we know we've won. Don't forget the toilet construction work for parked truckers as well. That will be a <laughs> boom industry in the years to come. Alex, uh, why is it time for a change? Explain, explain our reasoning to the, to the good listeners. Well, Remain, as a movement, argued for basically sticking rather than twisting. We've twisted. We're out. It's going to be fucking awful, but we can't continue arguing to stick. We need to accept that this is another country now in which nationalist isolation is the policy. Our institutions are assaulted, experts dismissed, and truth is a matter of opinion. That is now the status quo, which makes us the insurgents. Let's embrace it. Cool. And Ian, we have to uh, credit listener Darren Leithley, who tweeted a week ago, uh, bold move for a maniac's cast to rename as fucking hell what now? Uh, Lydia's to suspect that we've been hacked. Um, <laughs> how did how did he, presuming that anybody would want to hack us, how did he know? And did we miss a trick there with with the, with the foul mouthed option? Well, as you know, I mean, my my personal preference was for sort of fucking what bollocks. I mean, I really think that ultimately that would have been the best, you know, of all the possible names that we could have selected. 
but he got pretty close. Are we going to send him like a special gift, like a special insider gift for, for nearly guessing? It's weird because we did, we, I mean, we should do that. But considering that we had about uh, like a hundred possible, <laughs> possible <laughs> names for him, for, for anyone to get so close. Like your, your whiteboard uh, sort of analogy, it's, it's people won't know just how true that was. We were like that <laughs> meme of the guy going mad in, yeah. with all the strings pointing at different shit. And we, also, we also came up for many names for potential Radio 4 panel shows. <laughs> that take a, a wry look at the news. If there's anyone at Radio if honestly anyone is at Radio Four trying to come up with fucking names for their programs, we have about thirty that we're not using right now, and they are fucking brilliant. Alex, in particular, is like a Radio Four debate program name generator. Yes, once he starts, he just like every word coming out of your mouth is a Radio Four. He's program. like a, a Russian name farm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Naomi, you're the most full-time Remainer on the show, and we should reassure listeners that we're not giving up the Euroghost. We are still Romaniacs at heart. Not a chance is that ghost getting given up. Once a Romaniac, always a Romaniac. But I think, maybe think, you know, Casper, the friendly open society ghost, rather than the moaning myrtle of maniacs. Um, I like to think of myself as, you know, a full-time Europhile and internationalist these days, maybe, rather than Romania. A citizen of everywhere, if you like. And, and like, for anyone that might be listening who's worried that we're about to depart from discussing all things government shit show related to Brexit, just remember, we spent last year saying, if people want to stop talking about Brexit, then we're going to have to stop Brexit. And you know what? We didn't stop Brexit. So I'm afraid now we've left the EU and we're inching ever closer to a terrible replacement of a deal. If we're lucky, there's no way it's going to go away as an issue. And we're going to be talking about Britain's relationship with Europe for many years to come. So the spirit of Romaniacs isn't going anywhere, nor is Best for Britain. And if we can keep up the good fight, we will do. And please, please do stick with us. They can take away everything, but they won't take my schadenfreude. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Naomi, there's something you wanted to bring up, uh, a call to arms for the listeners. Yeah, so um, Parliament's Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee um, has this week launched a survey inviting the public to give their views on constitutional reform, something we often talk about on the show. And they say it's to investigate what elements of UK politics uh, most needs reforming. But I wouldn't say that the committee is loaded with what we would generally describe as reformers. And doubtless the anti-reformers will be all over this answering the survey. So I think it's very important that listeners respond. Um, It's a bit of an odd one because you're asked to score from one to five the importance of each issue with one being the highest and five the lowest. And basically, it would just be great if the progressive reformers listening to this show all head over to complete the survey. And you might want to give a high priority one to things like the electoral system being reformed and a a low priority five to things like updating human rights, Uh, because whatever that means to this government, I couldn't possibly comment. So you can find a link to the survey in my Twitter biog. Um, So, you know, not it's not a tweet for me, but it's in my biog. And I'm sure we can tweet it out from the OGWN account or you can just Google PACAC survey and it'll come up. That's a terribly sinister euphemism, isn't it? Updating human rights. After the, <laughs> yeah. after, after the military junta seized power, they updated human rights. <laughs> uh, on this week's podcast, Leveling Up, Interventionist Economics, not me, mate, never heard of it. You must be confusing me with another government. As the Conservatives find themselves hemmed in by COVID, Marcus Rashford, rebellious Northern Tory MPs, and now news that the NHS is £1 billion short of what it needs for the winter. Why is the party so happy to revert to free marketeering, child privatising type? Then some good news. The far-right populist wave is in retreat across Europe. We'll ask why and if it's only temporary. And we look to the future as each of our panellists chooses a burning issue for the next four years and a piece of legislation that really, really, really could happen. All that in the first edition of Oh God, What Now? So it's been another classic week for Her Majesty's Government. The school meals fiasco seems to have drawn out the very worst in Tory MPs. Helping hungry kids now counts as nationalising children, apparently. The selective lockdowns are causing uproar. On Monday, some 50 Tory MPs demanded that Boris Johnson provide a clear roadmap out of lockdown, telling him that the COVID pandemic, quote, has exposed in sharp relief the deep structural and systemic disadvantage faced by our communities. 
And on Monday, The Guardian revealed that the NHS in England is over a billion pounds short of what it will need to handle the coming winter and restart routine operations. In every case, the reaction of the new levelling up, economically active government has been to go back to its roots of free market solutions for everyone. Ian, after last year's election, it was claimed in a lot of places that Johnson's government would adopt a winning formula of social conservatism mixed with kind of economic intervention that would make Thatcher turn in her grave. Um, At the moment, they seem very content to let the market, including their close friends in the market, um, handle everything. Was there ever real substance to this idea of a more kind of um, north-friendly conservative party that was going to kind of steal some of Labour's territory economically? Substance, no. I mean, they didn't really know. They didn't really have a clear picture of what they were going to do. But they did. I do think that they actually intended to do stuff. And you can sort of see that in the... um, the the conflict around cabinet around uh, Rishi Sunak sort of taking a th- what was supposed to be a three year spending review and turning it into wonks it means all those lovely projects are sort of fading away into the wind. I think what they envisaged was this quite glorious form of state intervention. You know, here is our great new Silicon Valley instantly magicked. You know, into this northern town, and Boris Johnson will stride across it like this. You know, conquering chieftain. And in fact, what they're being presented with is, well, there's um, a pandemic and you're just going to have to pump money into the economy in order to keep people a bit poorer than they were before the pandemic hit while everyone's riddled with anxiety. And that's far less attractive to these guys than anything else. And they're also, they're, I think they're increasingly concerned about a vaccine and increasingly cognizant of just how long it would take before people got access to the vaccine. You know, even in the best best case scenario, it's going to come out, you know, let's say sometime next year, then you've got to start delivering it to really quite old people, then slightly younger, then vulnerable. And it's a really long time before you get to, you know, like the people on this panel, before any of us will be taking this vaccine. It's unlikely to be in 2021. So then again, they're like, well, just how long is the spending going to go on for? And then in the background of it, you get this kind of, like this muscle memory that they have, for the years, including Thatcher and since her, of all the arguments they've made, you know, by their own household budget analogy. So they can't understand, they fundamentally have never engaged with the economics of what it is for a government to borrow in order to stimulate the economy. Uh, You talk to them, and if you look at the tweets from Tory MPs going, well, we'd like to, you know, obviously feed children, but we've got to balance the books. And you think, well, I mean, do you do you not understand what inflation is? Like, do you not understand what interest rates on bonds are? Do you not know, you know, what taxes are? Because it, it is not a household. A, a country is not a household. And yet they've been telling them, them themselves that for so long, and they've done such little intellectual engagement with that kind of economics that I think when it when it when these situations arise, they just fall back on that argument that they've been using now for about half a century. This assumption that was being made, kind of imagine that, they, that, that their ideology didn't matter to them, and that they, in order to kind of, in order to kind of win, they could adopt a more economically populist message, and sort of abandon their their Thatcherite instincts. And it's like, well, these are kind of for good or ill. These are sort of baked in. They they do actually believe in 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 this. But that's not, it's not a fundamental conservatism thing, right? This is the thing. Some of the best sort of um, Keynesians are. Uh, have been Tories. You know, it was it, it happened when Thatcher took over. That's when the change happened, you know, from 1945 until then, you could argue even earlier than that. You know, that was not what conservatism in this country was. It was aware of these ideas. But the, the lionization of Thatcher and, and that, that thing they've done with her of turning her into the, like the, the, the pinnacle of what their philosophy achieves means they can't access any of that historical memory. So they just so ultimately, unless it it comes in the form of a new you know high tech solutions for blah, blah blah, they they can't really picture it. And even then, you could argue that a lot of that stuff is fundamentally Cummings. And really, you know, just how conservative is he, and just just how much affinity with him do they have when you get past the idea that they think he's someone that helps them win elections? Mm. Naomi, those Tory MPs, mostly from the north, who wrote to Johnson reminding him of his promises to level up. Only one of them was brave enough to vote against the government on free school meals. So, I mean, how substantial is this? Does it count as a rebellion, even? 
Uh, no, it doesn't. And props to that one MP. He's the MP for Colne Valley, Jason McCartney, and he did vote to extend free school meals. As for the rest, look, I strongly suspect that they will keep doing the government's bidding up until such point where they don't see it as being in their interest anymore. And I think we are well away, from, you know, a good way off of that for now. I just, I, I don't think that they are going to rebel in any big numbers. I think it seems to be the same all the way around. You've got a few ERG types, a few from the so-called One Nation caucus, but you know the rest of the backbenchers have had numerous opportunities and reasons uh, to to defy this government, and they don't. Their mo seems to be all bark, no bite. So they make noises in committee, on TV, on Twitter in particular, and then every single time they fall into the government's chosen voting lobby. Alex, some of the MPs that have come out most strongly against Marcus, Marcus Rashford's disgracefully divisive claims that children shouldn't go hungry <laughs> are fairly new intake Tory MPs. Um, and I saw Mary LeConte on Twitter suggesting that the 2019 intake in particular, just they haven't actually had a chance to acclimatise to Westminster because of COVID. So they're basically feral. There's a kind of <laughs> taming process that takes place when you're around other MPs. Do, do, you, do you agree that this has kind of made them more sort of, uh, I suppose, more very online? Or would they be like this anyway due to hopelessly broken personalities? <laughs> um, that's what we, we call in the law a leading question. Um, so, you, no, I think what you're seeing is, you know, for years now, everyone was going, oh, God, how is Labour going to reconcile all these different strands that it has in it and all these different voting blocks? And the, the Tories, by capturing this these northern constituencies, now have the same problem. So you have, you know, first of all, the government's running around trying to dampen their ludicrous comments, you know, the people that doubled down on the idea uh, of bar humbug to hungry children. Then you have uh, the MPs who are writing in to say you're not really levelling up if you put us in lockdown with no financial help. Then you have another slew of MPs who are now touring the media, expressing sort of buyer's remorse for voting against extending school meals and asking the government to U-turn. And on the sidelines, let's not forget, there is a fourth group, the the head-banging anti-EU bloc, waiting in the wings to cast a BDI on any deal that might come back from Brussels. So and Anthony Seldon wrote a couple of years ago that the, the perfect result of an election is a comfortable working majority, that landslides can be a curse because they make the government patrician and out of touch and they make MPs prone to insubordination and infighting. And that's what we're seeing. Um, Ross, Boris Johnson has found time to go after do-gooders and lefty human rights lawyers. Uh, the kind of people that everybody's complaining about at the moment. But not to discuss free school meals. Rashford alleges that the two of them haven't spoken since June. Is he sort of blowing a relatively cheap chance uh, to do the right thing here and to and to sort of d- diffuse a really damaging fuss? Yeah, he is. But um, if he met Rashford, he would have to admit that Rashford has a point and he has to instead to maintain this line that councils can afford to feed kids despite the enormous financial pressures that councils are under thanks to the pandemic and that they were under even before the pandemic. This is is not an issue on which Johnson feels any personal affinity. And it goes back a little bit to what Ian was saying about conservatism. There is a strand of conservatism and traditional one-nation conservatism that has a very paternalistic approach towards your responsibilities towards poorer people in society. Johnson actually doesn't share that. There is nothing paternalistic about Johnson, and that is not just because we don't know about all his children. You know, I doubt he's he's made a packed lunch, for example, in his life, and certainly not for at least one of his children. He He isn't that kind of individual, and he doesn't have that strand of conservatism in his in his body in his blood if you like as soon as you mentioned Tory paternalism I was like she's gonna go for the gag isn't she yes <laughs> sorry couldn't help it quite right quite right Ian the treasury has denied it's withholding an extra 150 million pounds for free school meals from the department of education 
is Gavin Williamson trying to do the right thing, but being undermined from number 11? Like, are there tensions within the government on this? <laughs> I mean, do, it's, if there's any question that starts, is Gavin Williamson trying to do the right <laughs> thing? Then, I, I don't know, I'll leave it to you. you, know, you, what you want to go yeah, man, he's just fucking, he's basically, he's doing the same thing. Every time he just sees like, lots of shotguns, in the forest in the dark and he's like please shoot that guy don't shoot me so no i wouldn't i would take all of that with as many truckloads of fucking salt as you can pour on them <laughs> short and sweet Ros, regarding that nhs shortfall this is a dispute between hospital trusts and nhs england over funding allocation but the treasury is ultimately providing the money why is that system work the way it does wouldn't it be easier to fund them on a per hospital basis Well, the way the system works is that the Treasury gives NHS England money and then NHS England in turn distributes that money to hospital trusts and care commissioning groups. And that is actually for a good reason, because they know better than the Treasury where it needs to go, certainly in normal times and arguably always. But NHS England say that the Treasury has given it less than it asked for. So they've stopped repaying the trust costs in September. And instead, they introduced a system of what they call financial envelopes. It's as if your work stopped paying your expenses and said, you only have this much to cover them, even if you've already spent the money. And a study from Imperial College London has shown that antibodies for COVID fall rapidly after the first infection, which makes herd immunity much more difficult. Is this changing projections for how long COVID could stay in circulation? Not really, because we didn't have that information before, and it's still not entirely clear. I mean, firstly, the idea that COVID will ever be out of circulation is for the birds. COVID will always be in circulation. It's out there. We're never going to eradicate it completely. And if a country did or does manage to do so, it will only import more infections once it reopened borders, as you can see in New Zealand now basically having to introduce a two-week quarantine every time anyone wants to come into the country. So the question then is how long does immunity last if you've had it once? And the antibody element, those the, the, the antibodies have fallen, but that, those are not the only ways the body fights infection. There are also T cells and B cells involved, but testing for those is much more complex and costly than it is for testing for antibodies, so we don't tend to do it so much. Some vaccines are actually targeted at these T cells and B cells, so they may end up being more effective and lasting longer than they would be if they just if, if they were a normal kind of vaccine. And we also, as well, don't know whether reinfections will be as severe. The very, very limited evidence we have, which is a handful of cases globally of reinfection that we're sure about, suggests that they won't. But it, there is still an enormous amount that is that is uncertain. No, I mean, another thing that's uncertain, uh, of course, is what's going to happen in the next election, which is four years away. The Tories are still <laughs> polling slightly ahead of Labour. Labour pulled ahead at one point. Um, you know, they kind of, they go, they're just roughly neck and neck, despite this Dickensian moment. So how does a government with a meaty majority gauge the political cost uh, to its reputation of unpopular decisions? Like, is it, is it, is it always just thinking, look, nothing matters, we'll just steamroll on regardless? Well, yeah, I mean, look, ordinarily, of course, we'd we'd have actual elections happening throughout a parliamentary term, local elections, mayoral elections, by-elections. But of course, they've all been suspended this year due to, to COVID. And that means that a lot of the new intake MPs, of course, many of whom represented in this, this 55, in particular, are very jittery about how their constituents feel about their performance to date because they haven't had any sort of markers. Um, and I find it especially among those who have come freshly from jobs where you've got almost continuous feedback. You know, most most of us do now. Uh, it's either the customer is giving continuous feedback or your your manager is. Um, almost in real time. Um, And they're not getting any. Now, as far as we know, uh, all of these suspended 2020 elections are going to go ahead in 2021. So the government will, of course, then get a good flavour of their relative popularity from that front, obviously caveated by the fact that often people will vote differently in a Westminster election to to a local election. I really doubt either of the two main parties are expecting to romp home in the Scottish Parliament elections, of course. But but the lack of actual elections is partly why at Best of Britain we've been doing lots of um, rounds of focus groups 
in the red wall seats, um, as well as our MRP polling, so that we can talk to MPs about public opinion in their seats rather than just extrapolating from, you know, a sort of typical 2000 person sample national survey. And those who switched to the Tories at the last election from Labour, I have to tell listeners, do at the moment have the zeal of a convert still, and they really want to justify their decision to abandon Labour, often after a lifetime or several generations of, of having backed them. However, Good news is that voting block is softer than the Conservatives would like, and not least because they are not at all laissez-faire when it comes to economic issues, and they're, they're definitely not going to take kindly to any hints of more austerity or a lack of public expenditure in their backyard. By the time our next episode is released, voting will have closed in the 2020 US presidential election. Supposing Donald Trump could be a significant step in curbing a far right which has been emboldened all over the world since his inauguration. But already all is not well for the fash curious. Um, <laughs> uh, Alex, you, you are a bit of an expert. Greece's Golden Dawn is perhaps the furthest right party to enter the political mainstream in recent years, uh, but they're effectively no more. What's happened to them? Um, in short, they're all nicked except a couple who are on the lamb. Um, so Greek prosecutors found an incredibly elegant solution. Instead of going after them on hate speech or constitutional ground, which would mean a massive political fight on freedom of speech and in ideological grounds, they looked at their actions, they looked at their organization and found that their command structures were incredibly linear, almost military, that they were profoundly corrupt, stealing money left, right and center, and that they used violence and intimidation. So they went after them under organized crime legislation. The bonus to that was that as the trial went on, what was revealed was the rot inside that party. So instead of being seen as martyrs, their public support collapsed long before they were put in jail. Well, we talked last week about the far right's total failure in New Zealand. But where are they still making significant gains in, in Europe uh, or elsewhere, or at least holding firm in places that have had um, elections, I guess, pre-COVID? Generally. Um, honestly, nowhere. So I looked at every poll of polls for all EU countries plus Norway, Switzerland, Turkey, India, and Brazil. Uh, Mo Modri in India is the exception, I guess, but everywhere else they have taken a massive hit. Even in countries like Brazil, Hungary, and Turkey, where they were immensely dominant, their ratings have dipped. Even in countries where they're rallying, like uh, uh, Finland, they're still way below where they were a year ago. So if there were an EU election right now, they would get 15% fewer MEPs than they have in their bloc. COVID-19 has been just a merciless test of glib, easy solutions. And if Trump loses, they will suffer another loss of confidence and progressives will be psychologically boosted. Yeah, but what are we going to do with the podcast name if everything starts turning out to be all right? Um, <laughs> we're gonna, we can't change it again. Are no, we no, 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 we're gonna, no. It's going to be called, it's oh good what now? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, oh good, what now? Like... <laughs> It's easy, don't worry. We'll just we'll just have to employ people to add an extra O to all the merch. But basically, basically they they have not had a good pandemic. And and you would think they would have a good pandemic. These are circumstances in which they should thrive, but they just haven't. Well, I want to come back to you on, on, on sort of what happens next uh, in a bit, Alex. But first, Roz, why is the far right so good at complaining about the establishment and good enough to get elected, but then no good at being the establishment and actually running things? Well, they, because their policies have a superficial appeal. But when you try to put them into practice, you encounter endless problems. I think we can all think of an example of that happening recently in Britain. I mean, but another one would be for example, depriving immigrants of benefits. It has a superficial appeal to a certain portion of, it, of society, but it creates massive problems down the line as well as being cruel. 
And the obvious riposte to that is why should people vote for policies that are complex and they don't understand? Uh, what surely populists have easy th- things that are easy to understand and that enables people to engage with politics in a way that they didn't before. But the answer to that is that you need gifted politicians who are able to inspire trust and, and explain policy simply and with nuance. And I think that is what we have been particularly short of in recent years. Um, and of course, a lot of the time the, these far right parties are uh, shored up and brought into power by the centre right. In Spain, the Vox party failed a vote of no confidence against the centre left government and has lost the support of its allies on the centre right. Is the centre right learning a little too late that there's, there's no pleasing these people? Or was there something just sort of more specific going on there? Well, I hope so, because there's no benefit in letting the far right into your coalitions. In effect, although it was the case of a party rather than a coalition, that's what Cameron did in order to stop people defecting to UKIP. He promised a referendum on the EU. And and look what happened then. Uh, They will just keep pushing because they're insurgents and they've got nothing to lose. And the centre-right has got everything to lose. They like disruption. They like insurgency. Centre-right conservatives generally don't. They don't like cooperation. They don't like getting shit done because they have nothing to gain from that. It destroys their whole raison d'etre, which is to say everything is shit and we need to take over. So that's fatal for a would-be conservative government, and you would hope that they are starting to realise that. So, Alex, the surge of the far right was, was generally seen as a delayed response to the 2008 financial crisis. Do you think that the current recession, so soon after the last one, will, will also benefit them in the same way, or have they lost some credibility that the memories just are not that short? Some of them are are, are, are fucking up as we speak. <laughs> I mean, there are many cases where they're fragmenting um, because uh, obviously when things are going well, it's it's easy to, to stay together. But the th- when things are not going so well, it's easy to have inter-fighting. So, for example, there's, a, there's now a, a sort of challenger to the Lega Nord in uh, Italy called uh, Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia, and they're sort of cannibalizing much of their vote. I mean, they have lost a lot of credibility because of how poorly they have done everywhere they are in charge. People are not stupid. They look at what's happening in, in the US, in the UK, in Brazil, and they see how these sort of populists cope with a real crisis. They look at Germany and they see how slightly more mainstream, slightly more, you know, evidence-led governments are doing. So they have lost some credibility, but they're definitely not out for the count. The economic crisis that will follow will be horrific, and that is always verdant ground for the seeds of division. Name another opportunity that the the far right might seize uh, for the virus is an excuse to keep people out of their countries uh, and, and sort of keep those borders closed. Is, is that something that you worry about, that some of these closures are going to be um, not permanent, but, you know, exploited? Well, I mean, I think we're in this really weird position. Well, they are. I mean, the, 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 the far right uh, leaders are in this really weird position of being both very sort of protectionist, racist, but also very anti-mask and anti-lockdown. You know, let us breathe only the germs of our own people. You know, it's just this sort of fucking madness right and for liberals our problem has actually been of course that our borders haven't been fucking well closed and they should have been they weren't closed down early enough we didn't fight the virus at the border in the way that we we could have done and 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 as new zealand did so this is one situation where actually it would have been proportionate to pull up the drawbridges um and we're in this paradoxical situation where liberals think controls now are good and the right have been very lackadaisical about it and of course the far right are very overrepresented amongst the anti-mask groups Turning to America then for the last bit, there was a recent documentary about Pepe the Frog uh, which showed how the internet meme turned into a symbol for disaffected mm. young men who could then be radicalised into the far right. If Trump loses, those men will be kind of cut adrift from mainstream politics, or at least they will be cut adrift from power. Where, where will they go? Yeah. I mean, into sorority houses with a gun. That's where men's rights activist Elliot Roger uh, went um, after being radicalised by the far right into extreme misogyny, as I, as I learned on my Bunker Daily with the Everyday Sexism founder, Laura Bates, a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, and as Voltaire said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And and it's the online platforms that have been enabling a lot of this to happen. But I do fear in both the USA and here in the UK, the risk isn't that those who become disaffected or, or detached from mainstream right-wing parties like the Tories and the Republicans... It's not that the risk is that they don't return to to Labour and the Dems, it's that they shift even further to the right. And sadly, there are many pockets of extremism dotted all around the internet, you know, gaming forums and such like for these people to gather in and and further radicalise ever younger men. And it is usually men. And have big platforms like Facebook and YouTube learned any serious lessons about their role in, in radicalization about what they allow on their platforms. In the case of YouTube, actually algorithms driving people to uh, more and more extreme material. Mm. I think there have been very marginal improvements. And for instance, I actually really like what Twitter have done in the last week or so. I don't know if you've all noticed that they prompt you to open and read an article now before you retweet it. Um, so they're sort of trying to clamp down on some of that sort of fake news spreading or, or, or people you know, chasing a headline rather than the content uh, of the facts in, in the article. But let's face it, we, we know that it's the big boys like Google-owned YouTube that are the chief protagonists in all of this with the algorithm algorithms that suck in sort of previously innocent minds and help radicalize them. And there are no significant signs yet that they intend to address this properly. And I've appeared myself in a few fake news, far-right hate videos uh, alongside figures like George Soros. Uh, and they have very, very threatening undertones. And the comment section is full of sort of death threaty type stuff. Uh, and in our experience, it takes months for YouTube to act and take them down. Ian, do you think a Biden victory would inspire a, a massive backlash on the right, which, of course, is what, is what many people are scared of? Or could the air go out of the balloon to some extent without the race baiter in chief to, to sort of give them the wink? A lot of that, I think, depends on the result, how tight the result is. And that could also be just in local areas, in states. Because you can see the way that they're trying to build a narrative of betrayal and conspiracy. Trump's been very explicit about it. He's been doing it throughout the campaign. Um, and if they can build that narrative, they will. And if it's a thumping defeat, um, then that'll be much, much harder for them. I think you get a sense with Biden of, I hope, I hope I'm not just projecting, but a, a sense that he recognizes the broader political importance of the moment. Like looking at some of his campaign videos are a very explicit return to broad-based political campaigning to maintaining a really broad electoral coalition talking to republicans talking to democrats of talking about the country being unified of doing the exact opposite of trumpism of you know the tribal politics of just zeroing in through division on your tribe but he has to show i mean more than anything you know if if biden wins and i can't even thinking about the evening that we're going to have next week when we're watching this stuff just makes my stomach feel like it's just sitting in the back of my throat i'm <laughs> utterly petrified by the notion of having to sit through that shit again but if he wins he, it, the historical importance of what will be going on will be almost unparalleled because he has to show you have to show that it's not just business as usual, that the complaints people had when they took these votes for Trump, took these votes for Brexit or for anyone else, that was just like, well, they never listen, nothing ever changes, this is the only way to do it, to tell the establishment something. You have to show things can change. Like you have to, it's, it's like Commissioner Gordon says to Batman in The Killing Joke. He's like, by the book, we have to show that our way works. And that means that Biden has to be like... It, on proper state intervention in the economy to reskill people to train them up that you know trump's response which is basically tariff war just does not work but that a, a social liberal left can provide for people and improve their material circumstances and the control they have over their life and that project you know it'd be so easy for us just to think biden's won it's over the whole thing's all done but, but actually the four years that follow i think will be some of the most vital that we will have lived mm. through in our lives Agreed. Yeah. And finally, I promised a tasty bit of Brexit. Um, it's been reported that number 10 is waiting to see if Trump gets elected before gunning for no deal. And um, without getting too wildly excited, how likely do you think it is uh, that the end of Trump would also 
mean the end of no deal. Now, I read that story and I thought that was an absolute load of tosh. And I was quite surprised, to be honest, that it came from Ivan Rogers. And I was frankly quite surprised that The Observer gave it so much prominence. I don't think there is going to be no deal. I mean, those guys have been pretty fucking quiet this week while they've been doing their talks and the talks have been ongoing. That to me suggests they're about to come out with a deal. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, at this point, I think that's like 80, 90%. And, and I'd, be, I'd be surprised if we got to a fortnight's time without a deal having been announced. And I suspect it will be less time than that. I don't think the Trump thing has any impact on that. If these guys were going to go for no deal, they would have done it like a week back when they were doing their whole, you know, you know, sort of high school prom drama routine of, oh, you come talk to us. No, you come talk to us. Once, I mean, they went back in to chat about things. You know, it's not going to be because of the Trump victory. So I, I would put that story to one side. So, new name, new features, and it's time for the first overrated, underrated, where a panellist chooses two things from the world of politics, one that's overrated and one that's underrated, hence the name. <laughs> Naomi, you, you have that terribly well, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. For people, the over and under. Naomi, <laughs> uh, this pre-election week, you are doing US Democratic nominees. I am. Now... I know that you're all going to savage me for this one, as to probably will many listeners. So I'm going to strongly caveat what I'm about to say with it is not that I do or don't rate these people, just that at times one has been overrated, the other has been underrated, okay? So I'm going to say overrated, Hillary Clinton, underrated, Bernie Sanders. And I say this as somebody who has met Hillary Anyway, in 2016, I don't think Bernie was the best candidate the Dems could have picked, but I do think he was underrated. And of course, Hillary's electability was overrated. And by 2016, it really was the end of the road for like endless triangulation, whether for Labour here in the UK, the Democrats, whomever. Because the problem with it is, is that it doesn't help us cut through with big principled ideas and is a tactic rather than a long term strategy. And so her politics just didn't leave a good legacy for progressives. You know, where do you draw the line between making compromises and being compromised? She she sort of represented the political orthodoxy of the previous few decades that so many voters had felt failed them. And Sanders definitely didn't. And, and progressive politics needs to constantly refresh and renew itself to survive. So, of course, I have big differences with him over things like free trade. And you can make some of the same criticisms of him as of Clinton. You know, he didn't change his politics much over time either, but did try to change opinion and convince people over to his way of thinking. But I think he was underrated because he is a good campaigner, certainly better than Clinton, and constantly tries to make society more progressive. Uh, You know, too many in the UK conflated him and Corbyn. And I think that grossly underestimates Bernie. He is not only a best campaigner, he is a much more rounded politician. And for Romaniacs, Bernie considers Remain a progressive struggle, unlike Corbyn. Wouldn't you say perhaps in 2020, certainly in the primaries, that that kind of changed around and that, that, that certainly at one point in the primaries, Bernie seemed to be overrated and Biden sort of sorely underrated. People were, were really saying, he's this old man, he's going to be a, he's going to be a disaster and, and really kind of underestimated his support and actually his ability to be a strong anti-Trump candidate. So do you think it kind of like that it, it sort of it changed around this year? Yeah, I mean, I, and I certainly don't think Sanders was the best candidate come 2020. I just think in 2016, he probably would have had a better shot than Hillary. Um, he also had quite a lot more executive experience than Corbyn um, because he'd been a mayor. Uh, and he he's really helped change the Democrats from kind of within, but kind of outside because he's an independent senator. So he's not actually uh, a Democrat member. So they do now as a party have a renewed interest in wealth redistribution and long overdue interventionist policies on welfare. And I just think that he has a better compass than both Corbyn and Clinton. And so that's my pitch to you. I think at times Clinton, as amazing as she's been and the amazing career she's had, had been overrated, particularly during that campaign. And Sanders has been underrated. For our third segment, I've seen the future and it's potentially okay. Romaniacs made its debut three and a half years ago during the 2017 election campaign. Now we've got to tough it out for another four years with this government. Each of our panellists has chosen one policy area that they think could change for the better before 2024. Roz, you've chosen green jobs. 
Yes. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a mini furore over a government poster that urged a ballet dancer to retrain in what was somewhat entertainingly called cyber. Um, and crass though it was <laughs> to, to see the government evoking some kind of robotic dystopia, um, it, it did make me wonder Firstly, why would someone in a very physical job want to retrain the desk job? But secondly, will those jobs, even in cyber, uh, still exist in a recession anyway? Um, because at this point, we need to create new industries, particularly to replace the ones that Brexit is going to hit, develop a reputation of doing something good, well, rather than screwing up our economy and our politics simultaneously. And a way to do that is to create jobs in things like energy efficiency, renewables, electric cars, bikes, all these things we hear a lot about and we need to develop, but are still, for many people, unaffordable. And I'd like to see the government not just urging people to retrain in green, but giving them bursaries and apprenticeships to do it, funding companies who get into it, really trying to ensure we get a reputation post-Brexit as an innovator rather than a country that's just looking backwards. So that's my recommendation. Well, people complained about that ballet ballerina ad, but I saw Black Swan again last night. And there's someone who had, had she retrained in cyber, that film would have had a much happier ending. So don't knock it. Alex, the UK's last attempt at electoral reform failed in 2011. Uh, how do you think we can achieve it in the next four years? Well, um, electoral reform doesn't necessarily mean a change of electoral system, although heaven knows ours needs looking at. But now is the perfect time to enfranchise the two and a half million EU 27 citizens who live here. So before there may have been flimsy bad faith arguments that freedom of movement resulted in a sort of transience and split loyalties. But the UK has now left the EU and the people who have settled status are citizens of this country. The entire thrust of their immigration argument was to equalize things, to make them fair for everyone. In this context, affording Europeans who are permanently resident here the same voting rights as Commonwealth citizens enjoy is, in my view, irresistible. And this window of opportunity will not come round again and must not be lost. Naomi, your Herculean task is to make land value taxation <laughs> sound hip and sexy. Uh, which, go for it. Which makes me think I should get Alex or Ros to read it because uh, they're, they're the voices that get the love, right? Um, look, a huge sense of economic injustice in no small part helped to drive the anti-status quo sentiment that kicked back against the Cameron government in the 2016 referendum. And as we all know, there are three main factors of production, land, labour and capital. But for far too long, the main factor of production that was squeezed by governments over and over to be ever more productive was labour a.k.a. people who have to work for somebody else. Meanwhile, capital and land were largely ignored and allowed to become ever more concentrated in the hands of a few and to become less productive. And so what I want to push for very, very hard is a much less exploitative tax, a land value tax, LVT, that will help to redistribute wealth more fairly by making land more productive for society at large. LVT is one of the few taxes that promotes both economic social justice and economic efficiency at the same time. So what is it? <laughs> Effectively, it's a levy on unimproved land. So the more you improve the land that you own, the less tax you pay on it. If you just land bank without developing it, as so many of the big home builders do, you'll get hit. So unlike property taxes like council tax, LVT disregards the value of the buildings and the property that sits on the land. And that's because land derives its value from its location and its scarcity rather than from the buildings that sit on top of it. So the more infrastructure that there is near the land, the more the land is deemed to be worth. And unlike property taxes, an LVT would encourage development. People have an incentive to put uh, uh, idle land and underused land to more productive use as any improvements to the land on or, or the property then aren't taxed. So, look, this tax is very, very easy to collect. It's very hard to avoid because land can't exactly be squirreled away in an offshore tax haven. And the rich will, you know, pay more because they tend to have more land. And because it disincentivizes uh, property speculation, it helps to smooth out those cycles of boom and bust, making property more affordable for younger generations. Finally, we don't need to be scared of implementing it. 
it is not untested. It's already up and working in places like Pennsylvania, Kenya, New Zealand, Australia and Denmark, to name just a few. So, kids, tell your friends about land value taxation. Good pitch. Good pitch. That was very good. Mm. Mm. Thank you. I'm convinced. Ian, you've gone for the really big one, the one we dream of, undoing Brexit. What do you mean by that? Uh, and how, how could it be achieved? Okay, so I mean, I, I feel like we know the time scale that we're, that we're realistically looking at, which is 10 years. Okay, and it is, There's, you know, that's, and that's the optimistic scale of things. And I think that's as optimistic as you can realistically be. We hope for Starmer coming into power. There's nowhere else it can be um, in 2025. Uh, but we don't think, you know, I, I think it's unrealistic to think he would ever make it any kind of electoral company. In fact, he definitely fucking won't. So really what you're looking at is if you have a Starmer government or at least a Labour government um, in, tw- in 2030, that that's the point they could do it. But what happens in the next four years that get us closer to it? And the stuff that gets us closer to it are these small incremental bits of movement towards Europe. And they're mostly pretty fucking boring, right? Like they're mostly sort of like mutual recognition of professional qualifications if it's not in in the deal, which I don't think it will be. Freedom of establishment for services, business mobility, sort of reciprocal arrangements for temporary entry and stay for businesses. Signing up to EU programs as a third party, but nevertheless, you know, things like Horizon Europe or Euratom Research and Training um, and mutual recognition on industries. Now, they are dull. Right. But I mean, the thing is, that's what the EU is mostly composed of is really, really boring shit. That, that's mostly how it functions. Mm. But what they do is they just bring you closer. They provide a, a pad from which you can start implementing that, that sort of remorseless dynamic, which is we're doing a bunch of trade. Why don't we just make it easier? Which, which is ultimately how you start getting into something like the EU, you know, taking down regulatory burdens, yeah. saying, well, well, OK, so fine. So we'll align. So in the next four years, it's the grim, tedious trench warfare of no matter what slim deal they come back with, pushing for these small incremental changes, the most you can expect from a government like this, but that they might arguably be able to say, because they're never going to sign up to anything that makes it look like it's a Remainer idea, but they will sign up to things that make it look like they've been very successful at setting up some great deal with Europe. Now, that's not in the deal they've got now but it can be in the arrangements which are pursued over the next few years. And that gets us closer to a position where we can realistically be there in 2030 going, no, and now it makes sense for full EU membership or at the very least for EFTA membership, EEA membership. And on those ideas, that's how we pursue it. So ultimately that trench warfare, we're about to get into the position where we do it. This year is is a lost year on that. It's, It's the year of transition. January the 1st, that's when this process starts to take place. So the government could do, you know, some little few concessions, some bridge building, as long as it framed it publicly as getting a better Brexit, not undoing or diluting Brexit. Yeah, I mean, they want most of this stuff as it is. I mean, they want mutual recognition of professional qualifications. It's it's the EU that wants it to be done on sort of sector specific basis. So on a lot of this stuff, it's not too hard to put. I mean, it, it doesn't. What it has to be is not a Remain issue. It has to be a look at how well you've managed to sort out this relationship. And on that, they can be pushed into it. And I think once the fire of the sort of the tribalism of it dies down a little bit, actually, they might be, they might arguably be more receptive to sort of industry appeals on this stuff in the years to come. And that stuff will be useful. That is the way you start rebuilding the relationship. And the absence of it, you know, the the main problem with no deal wasn't so much what happens on January the 1st, because their deal was so shit. There's barely any distinction on January 1st between no deal and deal. It's really that it gives you a framework. It gives you a political circumstance of dialogue where you can start building up that relationship. And the more you build it up, the more you prevent them building up relationships with places like China, with places like America, that make it actually harder to come up with those deals in the future with the EU. Ian, I I heard a brilliant phrase recently, which was, the logic of geography is merciless. Um, (laughs) Yes, exactly. I think that's a really wonderful thing. Yeah, one of the few things we have on our side is geography, so we, we will be able to make good use of that. Finally, are you on email? You simply have to be these days. <laughs> it's like a telegram, but there's no need for a telegraphist. You can send it yourself from your personal computer or mobile telephone device. <laughs> 
We want to hear from you, the listener, for our new outro segment, But Your Emails. Each week, we'll pick out some correspondence from our Patreon backers to read out at the end of the show. Kick us off this week, it's Mark Housen who asks, given this country's rapid drift to the right and subsequent erosion of rights, etc., how far away from me we from failing to fulfil the criteria for rejoining the EU, even if such a possibility arose again? And how long would it take to re-establish the conditions? I mean, the key thing there is, is going to be the European Convention of Human Rights. Um, that, we leave that, that, we're screwed. You need to be a member of the Council of Europe in order to be part of the European Convention of Human Rights. If you're, if you're not in the European Convention of Human Rights, you're not getting in. So actually, that not only would it be catastrophic on any kind of sane assessment of what is human progress for us to be pulling out of the European Convention of Human Rights, but it would put an ex- a very, very severe obstacle in, in terms of getting back into the EU. There are other political standards as well, uh, a free media, things like that. But to be honest... The way some countries in Eastern Europe are going at the moment, I doubt we would have too much trouble meeting those requirements. <laughs> you know, we don't batshit, you know, fascist autocracy. Uh, so those, I think, will be fairly easily met. And and it's worth remembering that no parliament can bind a future one. So, you know, a bit of kind of, you know, campaigning zeal for us all. Let's just push for a progressive government at the next election, smash the vote leave government, and then have our lot undo all of the erosions that mean that we are eligible again. And I mean, I suppose because Ian did raise uh, the rejoin scenario, even if it's like, you know, a sort of at least a decade in the future. It creeps so- Norway. So <laughs> if if we did, do you think you were talking about kind of an after thing, Ian? Do you think that the EU would demand uh that we joined the the Euro? Um, or would that just be something that wasn't worth fighting over? No, I don't I mean I can't see I mean, you know, the countries like there's plenty of countries right now that aren't in the Euro and that, that idea that they're all moving towards it, I think pretty much died in 2012 really during the euro crisis i mean that 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 seems pretty easy right now i don't think that's a a major struggle this i think the stronger argument is would they have us back because we're an absolute shower of assholes and we're a fucking pain in everyone's ass uh and and that is tougher (laughs) but but it it seems to me that britain coming back you know that the child coming back into the fold after you know rejecting its parent blah 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 i mean i probably if i was in charge of the communications i probably wouldn't say rejecting its parents as part of the rejoin campaign but you know that coming back into the fold would be such a big pr win that that is still an attractive prospect and unless things keep on going as catastrophically wrong as they are right now there is also a significant financial benefit to the eu of britain being a member so i think ultimately they will but i'm, I'm not going to pretend that that won't be fraught with difficulties because it will be I mean, the, the, the real issue in the next few years will be whether the EU is in the frame of mind of enlargement or consolidation. Mm-hmm. Because actually, if they're in the frame of mind of consolidation and pushing the federalization idea further, then the last thing they will want to do is to associate themselves with the UK again, with a, a, basically a heckler that will go against all of that. But if they're in a frame of mind where they're looking at a two-tier approach at maybe having countries in the periphery of the euro, opening up the membership to countries like Albania and people like that, then maybe there would be a good opportunity. Could, could we stand in the street outside the, their house and go, I'm sorry, darling. I'm sorry. I've made some mistakes, but I'm changed. Yes. Take me back. Sex, sexed them at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> sing a song. Do you remember, darling, this used to be our song. And they just, just sing O to Joy outside there at the window. <laughs> We love reading your messages, so send them to us on our Patreon page and we will address one a week. Now, all that remains is for me to thank Alex. Thank you. Roz. Thank you. Naomi. Merci. And Ian. Thank you very much. And our latest Patreon backers. Our name has changed, but benefits of patrons are the same. Exclusive first access to live events, your emails read out, your name on the podcast, access to merch, all of that. Playing us out, as always, is Corner Shop who have given our theme song, Demon is a Monster, a new dub treatment. So thank you so much to the following people for backing Romaniacs in the past and, oh God, what now, in the future. Hello and thanks from me to Sarah with two R's, Stevie with four E's and John Hill with no extra vowels added whatsoever. 
Ein Gross Gott in Himmel, was jetzt? To Nick Well, John Doyle and Helen Haywood. Adios y ahora qué? From me and thanks for supporting us to Sam Holt. Andrew Jackson, uh, who sought to advance the rights of the common man against corrupt aristocracy and to preserve the union, unless of course it was the other one, uh, and Stephen Booth. Oh, thanks from me to Mark J, Kate Sullivan, and Athena Korotsis. And thanks from me to Catherine Davis, Peter Dawson, and Stuart Clemenson. Take care, and we'll see you next week. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. <laughs>